Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the U.S. Army War College podcast. I'm Colonel Tom Spar, Chair of the Department of Military Strategy, Planning and Operations here at the Army War College. One of the chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Special Areas of Emphasis for Professional Military Education is Data, Analytics, and Artificial Intelligence. According to the chairman, and I quote, senior leaders drive this AI adoption through policy, directives, and culture, and must have the knowledge of critical technologies to act. Our Chiefs of Staff of the Army, General Randy George, tells us to focus on fundamentals, and that technology should facilitate those fundamentals, not encumber them. He said at the Association of the United States Army Conference this year, and I quote, we must find ways to better access and process data. We have to incorporate emerging enabling technologies like machine learning and autonomy, and we will advance the integration of human and machines in our tactics and formations. China, our pacing threat, has stated that it will lead the world in artificial intelligence by 2030. And we've observed rapid advances in the use of all kinds of technologies in the war in Ukraine, including AI. Here at the Army War College, we're building several programs to implement this guidance and to educate our future Army and Joint Force leaders on data types, how data can inform decision making, and about potential ways to employ data in machine learning and artificial intelligence. We believe that senior leaders must understand the potential and the challenges in employing data and AI and the future roles of data analytics and AI-supported technologies. I couldn't think of anyone better to discuss this topic with me today than Dr. Alexander Miller. Dr. Miller is the Chief of Staff of the Army's Senior Advisor for Science and Technology. Alex has been the Senior Advisor for Science and Technology for just over a year now, and prior to that, he served as the Plans and Integration Technology Advisor and Intelligence Architecture Officer for the Army G2 Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence. He has a Master's Degree in Systems Engineering from the the Johns Hopkins University and a Doctorate of Technology from Purdue University's Polytechnic Institute, and he has been working in the technology field, mostly with Army Intelligence, for around 17 years. Good afternoon, Alex, and welcome to the studio. Tom, thanks for having me. It's a, when you when you lay it all out like that, it sounds like I've been doing this for a very long time. <laughs> you have, Alex. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's start with a little bit about you. Um, how does one become the senior advisor to the chief of staff of the Army for Science and Technology? That sounds very impressive. And what do you do in that role? I, I ask myself that every day. Um, no, it's it's um. It was not a job that I applied for. It was a job that I was pulled to. So I've, I've been very fortunate to work for General George for, like you said, just over a year um, and actually started when he was the vice chief of staff of the Army. Um, and then he he pulled me over when he became the chief of staff of the Army. But um, I'm sort of thinking about Carl Sagan's saying, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, first you have to create the universe. Um, I had an opportunity to work for the G2 for a very long time. And it was as the science and technology advisor, it was the architect for the 
the intel warfighting function and it was it was not just pentagon ideas it was operationally it was in afghanistan it was thinking through how we take all the specific point solutions and technology to solve very very niche intelligence problems and then scaling them up and what that led to was um, as the army stood up this thing called project convergence which is really a set of experimentations and exercises to show how all of the services and all of the domains and all the war fighting functions could come together for large-scale combat um, i had an opportunity to to run the isr task forces contribution to that um, which ultimately led to general george coming out to ntc in 2022 um, and everything moved very quickly uh, after that for me working on his staff um, so it's been it's been an interesting adventure the last year has shifted me very dramatically from the intelligence portfolio to the much broader mission command portfolio and i am now working on everything from um, recruiting data to how do we better um, assess different technologies coming into all of the different war fighting functions to frankly how do we do better business processes on the army staff because every staff officer just cringed a little bit um, thinking about all of the different tasks and papers and information papers and emails that you're going through this is an area where technology can actually aid us because the processes are so well-defined. So uh, a long-winded answer on, on how I got the job, but really trying to lay the foundation for why and how and what I'm doing. Now, that's great. And, and you and I worked together for years when you were the Army G2, and I was a brigade intel officer, then a division intel officer, then I was forward in Afghanistan. And um, I would like, can you describe some of the challenges you had in that position uh, as the army tried to integrate technology to make the intelligence force better. And I'm, I'm, this is a leading question because it's going to play back to some of the conversations you and I have had before when you've come and spoken to my classes. I want you to share some of those great stories uh, about your frustrations and your successes and how you overcame them. Cause I think they're, I think they're instructive. Uh, absolutely. There's I sort of have two go-to stories, um, and you've heard one of them, so I'm going to tell you uh, the second one first today. Um, and I say it's it, the first one is a story about a radio, and the second one is a story about a CD. Um, the story about a radio. When I was 21, I was just about to graduate from from Purdue for my undergraduate. I was working at uh, Fort Huachuca out in the the great American Southwest, and my job was to train the signet warrant officers on how to do their job, how to do part of the the hunting mission um, out there out there in the desert. Well, to do that, we were going to set up our own indigenous 3G network. And that meant we were going to bring our own radios, we were going to bring our own cell towers, we were going to do all of that organic to our training environment. Um, I was working for a company at the time, and they hired me on, and they said, you need to become very proficient at this radio system and understanding how to manage the signal and manage the radio and manage how it talks to other radios, which I found very ironic because at Purdue for my undergraduate, there were two tracks. There was network engineering and information systems, and I stayed away from network engineering like it was the plague. So all of a sudden I'm, I'm flying to uh, Chicago to get trained on this radio system. I'm carrying a whole bunch of equipment. I'm flying from Chicago out to Fort Huachuca, and I'm in the middle of the desert. And it's uh, it's summertime because I'm an intern and it's very hot. And I'm, I, I just remember sitting there logged into the Linux terminal of this radio going, this is really hard. Um, I can't imagine doing this being shot at, having somebody try to, to, to blow me up, or really just being under the duress that I would find out later when I did deploy to Afghanistan 
was sort of normal for how we do operations. Um, and it was sort of in that moment where I realized part of any of our jobs in terms of technology leadership is not just getting the technology there. It is making sure the technology is usable under the right conditions and the stressors that our soldiers and frankly, everyone in, as part of the land component. So all of our Marines, all of our, our Air Force brothers and sisters who are on the ground with us um, have to deal with every day. So that's sort of the, the story of the radio. Um, the second one is a little bit more fun because it's, I call it the story about a CD. Um, and I fast forward several years and I'm actually in Afghanistan. I am the, uh, I'm working for the CJ2. I'm working for uh, Major General Gary Johnston. And he has made me the tech ops lead for the entire Sejoa. So the entire combined joint area of operations for Afghanistan. And one of the challenges that we had was taking the daily reporting from the Afghan National Army and the Afghan government and then bringing that into our common operating picture so that we could say, here's where here's where their forces are, here's what they're doing, here are the operations, and here are the outcomes. Well, we had several challenges. One was most of my technical folks, to include me, did not speak the, the local language. So we are English-bound. It's not a great thing, but it is the reality. Um, so that was one. Two, all of their reports were on Word documents, and we had to move them from their computers onto our classified network. Um, and then we had to move it from our classified network onto the mission network, which for those of you, you know, in the global war on terror, you remember CXI, the Afghan mission network, the RISMA network. Um, we had to move it onto that enclave, and then we had to do something with it. And uh, I was having the hardest time because we were getting these bulk reports two or three times a day, and I had no means to, to move them. So I called back to, to INSCOM headquarters, the Intelligence and Security Command uh, on Fort Belvoir, and I said, I really have a problem. They said, we got you. We're, we have a system that's automated, and it'll move the data from whatever network you need to whatever network you need four times a day. And I went, that's, that's amazing. I'm, I'm totally in. Tell me how to do it. So we set it up, and what it really turned into was um, I had to queue up an email, and I would email a, uh, a, a distro, and on the back side, automatically every six hours, they would move the data from whatever network I needed to whatever network I needed it on. Well, one day I come in, I think it was a Saturday, um, and, and we're sitting there, and I'm saying, oh, man, the, the data's not moving. So I'm calling. I'm calling people, trying to get back to, to people on the East Coast when you know it's midday in Afghanistan, and finally someone picks up because it, they are a 24-hour watch cell. I go, hey. Like the, the process is broken. And what they said was, oh, no, and I'm going to protect the name because he's a great American. He wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, they said, well, well, Bob's on leave. And I, I paused for a second and went, what What do you mean Bob's on? Who, is Bob the machine? And they go, no, Bob is in charge of the team that burns the CD every six hours to move your data from one network to the other. That's great. And yeah. that was the moment that I realized that the automated system was people. I had just automated people that were out of my view shed. So um, that's when I really understood that on the technology landscape, we take a lot of the people manpower for granted all the time. And these these were hardworking Americans doing doing America's work. Um, and it was just invisible to me. So that's that's those are two real big times when I realized something about what we were doing. We did overcome that eventually, I think, though it was never it was never quite perfect. But I remember in 2020 when I was there, we did have some of those systems automated. Uh, but but again, still never perfect. Um, so so bringing us back here to to Carl Alberts, you're here this week uh, for a course, right? And, and 
um, we commonly conflate data and AI and machine learning, right? But they're all they're all different. This week, you're here to teach a course called Data for Decision Making uh, for Senior Leaders. Can you describe what you mean by, by data for decision making? And why is that important for, for colonels and, and general officers in our Army? Absolutely. And I, I want to give um, a ton of credit to the War College and, and Dr. Kathleen Moore in particular for jumping, jumping uh, on this challenge. Um, I'm going to start at the beginning. So what we really asked, what we and by we, I mean the chief, was what is our professional military education pipeline for getting a baseline of data literacy at the, the 06 promotable 07 level so that we are creating a generation of leaders who um, have the requisite skills. And I broke that down a little bit further and, and was a little less couth because what I said was they need to be able to ask better questions. They need to be able to figure out if they don't know something, who to go to to ask about it. And frankly, the third one is they need to be able to throw the BS flag when people start playing buzzword bingo, which we have a lot of. Um, so right now in the Army, we've got two extremely uh, talented sets of people who are doing um, training for data literacy. So we've got the Army Artificial Intelligence Center at uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, with uh, that it's part of Futures Command. And then we've got the Army Software Factor, also part of Army Futures Command in Austin, Texas. And they're focused on um, training skills for software development and cloud management and data engineering. And the, the folks in Pittsburgh are focused on um, how do you do machine learning and machine learning ops? And how do you, what are the requisite skills at the master's and PhD level? What we didn't have was what is the baseline PME for everyone so that we can make sure there's a baseline? Because while I know um, we like to chase the bright, shiny objects, right? So we like to say, hey, I need the AI that finds this tank in a picture, or I need to find this tell in a picture, or I need to, to find, you know, this group. Um, sometimes that's not the real question. And sometimes, and we just need leaders who understand, one, how to ask that good question. And then we also need the people who are working the problem that can describe the answer and why they came to the answer. There's no substitute for working under threat, right? So I know when you, when you were uh, in Afghanistan after me um, with Molly and team from the 513th, all of the data tasks were so fast because of what was happening in the theater. And I know that we like to think that there's infinite amount of time to answer questions. So just having the leadership that has that core understanding of, hey, where does my data come from? Who has access to it? Who has the authority to get to get me to yes? That will be that will be infinitely helpful, and we keep seeing pockets of this, right? It cannot cannot say enough good things about 18th Airborne Corps and what they're doing because they they have shifted themselves to think data centric, but also First Corps with General Brunson, they're fighting radically different dispersed data problems and doing the same thing, and 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 General Bernabe at Third Corps is realizing, hey, like if I've got a heavy force and I need to know maintenance, sustainment, where my log pack is. Um, those are all data problems that we can actually educate people to start asking about. Okay. No, that's that's great. Can you describe the difference between a data problem and an artificial intelligence problem? What, what does that mean, the, the, those two terms that we, like I said, commonly conflate to most and many people think are the same thing, but they're not? I'm, th I'm thinking about how to answer this. Um, my background is entirely computer, computer science oriented, and I am a firm believer that we do not have AI problems. We do not have AI requirements. We have 
challenges that require us to respond at a speed that is superhuman and a scale that you cannot just throw more people at, um, mostly because of lack of resources. Um, therefore, it forces us to use technology tools, everything from simple automation through traditional machine learning and, and statistical inference um, to some of the, the more advanced AI tools, whether they're deep learning or everybody loves the, to talk about chat GPTs and, and large language models. And then uh, even getting to reinforcement for automated course of action analysis. It's None of those are AI problems. Those are all, how do I answer a question that has implications at a scale that I cannot manage alone and a speed that I will have to, I, I don't have infinite amount of time to answer. So that's one side. I think that's the, the AI side. The data problems are much more nuanced, but they're sort of, they're in our face. And one of the things we actually talked about in the course this morning were, we got into a lot of system problems because we often complete, conflate data problems with system problems. This system can't share with that system. Well, that's generally not a data problem. That's just a bad interface problem. The data problem is, I don't know who has the authority to release it. I don't know who has the authority to see it. I don't know what my rules for sharing it are, and I don't know what my rules for usage are. And I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, we saw this all the time in the intelligence community, and the intelligence community has very stringent rules for role-based access control. Um, all of the data are tagged with what classification and who has access, and you have to have a mission need. Um, and right now, that is that is really siloed in the intelligence community and doesn't really translate to the broader mission community. That's a data problem because we know those rules exist. We just have not implemented them in data. Okay, that's great. So the AI is essentially as the speed of war increases, we're getting more efficient. It's making the analyst or the operator, the, the mechanic more efficient by using an AI type tool. That, that's, that's, um, that's definitely one way to look at it. And most of them, that, that's actually part of the parable of AI. The way that we're looking at most AI augmentation right now, um, I like to call it a, a digital prosthetic or a cognitive prosthetic. It is it is like giving yourself a, a third arm. Um, it makes you slightly better or maybe, maybe way better at the things you already know how to do. So it allows analysts to analyze data a little bit faster or a lot faster or with more accuracy or more efficiency um, you haven't you haven't duplicated that analyst, um, but you've you've supercharged them. Maybe you've made them instead of um, somebody who reads reports, maybe they are now an AI crew chief where they are QCing the recommendations from reports. So that's the cognitive prosthetic side. There's another aspect to this that I think we will get to, which is how do you leverage technology to come up with new and interesting workflows that aren't just how we've trained people to make people better. Okay. And of course, you always run into the autonomy question, right? And then, then the ethics side uh, uh, of that. doesn't seem like we're there right now with the Army, uh, but I'm interested in your thoughts on, do you see us getting there uh, in time? I, I do. Um, and that is based on a couple of different things. Right now, Army Futures Command, General Rainey, one of his main initiatives is uh, HMI, Human Machine Interfacing. And that is um, a evolution of manned machine teaming that is an evolution of sort of the old adage of the human machine centaur how do you make how do you make machines and people 
team such that the outcomes are are better than any one of them individually. Um, and that is the autonomy quest that is often overlooked because we think about computer-based processes that we want to automate and we don't always consider the actual automation tasks that we can offload to machines entirely. So there's, I think there's two pieces to that, to that puzzle. On the computer-based side, um, generally the barrier to entry for automation is some archaic process that was built to be as slow as possible because it gives people as much time to review, right? It's, it's sort of like government is inherently inefficient because you don't want any one of the, of the three parts of government to be able to move too fast unchecked. So a lot of processes are inherently slow because it, they want the process demands that more people interject themselves. Um, yes, we can automate most of that. Um, and in fact, we could automate most of that today. It just is a real stat on how much risk a leader is willing to accept. And generally what we see is in times of competition or conflict, that risk acceptance goes up. Um, but then unfortunately, there, become, there comes a threshold where we have to have a, a maturity about it where even if you accept risk, something might happen. That risk might actually materialize. And what we cannot do is, is have a knee-jerk reaction every time to, to turn it back down. Um, on the automation side of the robotics, I, I am super excited. I don't want to steal all of AFC's thunder, but the next year I think it is, is going to be incredible for robotics. Yeah, that's great. So we you kind of went this direction, but the culture. Do you think we have the culture in place uh, in the Army to, to adopt AI innovation? By that I mean the willingness to, to accept that risk, the willingness to experiment and potentially fail, uh, the trust to, to, to in, the, in both the subordinate to test it and then the, the trust in, in the black box. Do are we educated enough to, to, to try and uh, to use this stuff? I do. Um, and I think that is materializing. I, I'm, I'm super excited. Um, there's no camera. You can't see, you can't see me smiling, but the, the amount of unit level experimentation that's been happening over the last year has been incredible. Um, the, I'll be, a, I'll be a bureaucrat first. What we are trying to institutionalize in the army is a culture of, a culture of battlefield experimentation. And you hear it all over. So we used to call uh, Afghanistan the battlefield, uh, laboratory, um, some people call it the living laboratory. We want to foster and um, incubate that culture, but we also want to have the guardrails in place. And I'll give you an example. Um, cloud, data management, and access to commercial tools. We want to figure out what the best tools are that are available. What we don't want are individual soldiers trying to do that level of experimentation by using their government purchase card to to go buy cloud, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to- That would be bad. <laughs> it's generally not good. Generally has a poor outcome. Um, so what the Army's doing, and particularly our CIO, uh, Leo Garcia, and his team at the Enterprise Cloud Management Activity, ECMA, um, are trying to set up, um, and it's not perfect, right? So please don't send cards and letters. I know that it's not perfect yet. Um, they're trying to set up a process such that if you need cloud, you you can go get some type of VPC or otherwise and go do your your experimentation. That's that's one side. That's the practical side. The other side is a culture and lexicon uh, problem. Generally, when you say experimentation, you think laboratory, lab conditions, extremely instrumented, highly measured, um, and quite frankly, 
uh, at the end of the experiment, everything goes back to the way it was before. And that is not what we're talking about. What we are really saying is if you solve a problem, if you innovate and solve a problem, let's figure out how to keep it solved so that you're not solving it again and again and again. And that is that is something that you and I saw back in the D6 days forever. Units would would get themselves squared away about about month 10 of their deployment. They'd go, hey, we're rocking and rolling. We got this squared away. You know, they'd, they'd retrograde. And then they'd have to reset everything. Everybody would PCS, go different directions, and you'd have to start over. So all that, again. all that institutional right. knowledge disappeared. No, abs- absolutely. On changing gears just a little bit, do you think the Army uh, has the ecosystem in place? And when I say ecosystem, I, I refer to, uh, in terms of AI, the computing power, the data availability, and then the talent. And when I look at that, I think we're getting there on computing power. Data availability, eh, maybe the talent I have questions about. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I would say it's a no with an asterisk for all three. Um, and let me let me let me expound upon that a little bit. For the computing environments, that it goes back to what what ECMA and the CIA were trying to do. What what they are trying to set up is the playground for data scientists and data engineers and operations research folks through an approved platform so they can actually do their work on. So we see a little bit of this and and the elephant in the room is um, all the units going into Europe are being exposed to um, certain platforms that SAGU is using, which are very data rich. And there's, there's no argument there. Like there is no, no grounds to say that they are not great platforms that allow a lot of flexibility. And then they're coming back and they're going, Hey, I know that it's real. I used it. I can still pull it up in my office. Why can't I use it? So again, what what the army's trying to do is figure out how do we scale some of those very robust point solutions? Like what does that scale look like? Because at the at the end of the day, army mission command and army intelligence systems, when we used to count them up, they were about 20,000 pieces of kit across 15 to 1600 units of of all echelons core to company. So just saying that everyone has access to those big cloud-based platforms, that's not that's not real in terms of scale, especially if we have to go into a, a really degraded environment where comms are not robust. It's probably a tension with security there as well. Absolutely. Do we want the person sitting back in their living room having access to what they had when they were forward in you know, the security assistance group Ukraine? Maybe not. Maybe not. And then also um, thinking through what is what are the right amounts of data for what echelon now and and this is another big priority that the the chief has asked me to dig in on Um, we are so used to every brigade and every battalion and i would argue every company had access to almost the exact same amount of information there there is everyone pulled up pred feeds everyone pulled up reaper feeds everyone knew exactly what tails were flying because they had access to all of those and they could watch it through uvids is that necessary. Does a company commander or battalion commander need that video feed or does he need a dot? Does she need a, just a local set of here's where you need to go and why? Um, and it's not and it's not intentionally trying to degrade their access to information. It is trying to optimize how we use our IT infrastructure. And it gets back to how much of that compute power really needs to be proliferated where? And bandwidth probably as well, right? Bandwidth, um, terminals, and this this could spiral into a whole other conversation because I, I love the data conversation because it turns very quickly into a 
How do you access those data? What do you do with those data? Um, it turned, you know, I remember having giant terminals uh, for comms that in 2024, big targets. So how do we think about where and how to move those data and how to deliver moderate bandwidth with low latency so you can access the data you really need to? And then on the last part of the question you asked was, was the talent. I can honestly say that the army is is far out and ahead of anyone else. And I, I say that both greedily wearing a big army hat, but also pragmatically because I've, I've had an opportunity to see all of these these software factory centers. Um, and the, the Air Force stood up Kessel Run and they were a first mover. And that was, a, it, it was in Boston, I believe. Um, and, and everybody went, ooh, this is gonna be really important. We need to watch this. And then uh, they, they also set up a Kobayashi Maru and the Army stood up the Army Software Factory, and then we stood up the, the AI Scholars Program at Carnegie in Pittsburgh. And we are turning out cohorts, small cohorts, because it's it's um, not to say it is soft, it's like soft, it cannot be mass produced, you cannot do it at the point of need, you have to think about it in the future. Um, so we're turning out those cohorts of 25 to 50 people who are then going out into the force and then spreading that, so they become master trainers. Um, we will get there. I, I, this is one of the areas where I can say in two or three years, if you ask them that question, I will, I will answer, yes, we are at a steady state and we're growing. That's great. And you're on safe ground saying that the Army is the best. It's, <laughs> it's okay to say that at the Army War College. So um, I want to shift to Ukraine. You know, we read and hear a lot uh, about the changing character of war. And we talk about that all the time in the classroom here at the War College, uh, specifically in technology, AI, robotics, um, and what are the key lessons that you see coming out of, of the modern conflicts and particularly Ukraine, but, but take that wherever you want? You said the changing character of war, and that is a, that is a big focal point for us right now at headquarters army, um, to the point where, um, it is guiding, is my personal belief that it is guiding General George's thinking. And we see that in his focus areas. There's only four. It's not a treatise. It's not a. It's not a manifesto. It's war fighting. Or it's a focus area number one is war fighting. Focus area number two is delivering ready combat forces. Focus area three is continuous transformation, and focus area four is strengthening the profession, and and that is because of all of the changing character of warfare things that we're seeing in Ukraine and not just Ukraine, seeing it in. Gaza with Israel, seeing it in the Pacific, seeing it in the Middle East with with more one-way attack drones and our need for counter UES. But but specific to Ukraine, the use of drones has boggled, has caught everyone off guard. And it's not the fact that no one had drones before. We had tons. In fact, we, the US, made this at the time useful, now sort of arbitrary class system for drones, class one to five. And we own the class five space. We have the best ever. And I will I will take that to the bank. Um, and then we started building these class three smaller ones. And, and I think uh, I'm on safe grounds to say that the army just announced that we are going to end two of those class three systems, the Shadow and the Raven, because we're recognizing that we need to adapt and, and change faster than a 10 year cycle. Um, the Ukrainians and frankly the Russians have showed us that low cost and I mean five six hundred dollar low cost in mass creates more negative effect for the adversary 
than some of our extremely expensive, exquisite technologies. The, the Ukrainians are losing thousands of drones a month, and we are, we are trying to catch up to just producing thousands of low-cost drones a month. So um, what the chief has, has some of us working on is how do we take what DIU, the Defense Innovation Unit, has done with their blue list, which is approved uh, NDAA-compliant drones that any unit can buy, how do we expand that? And then what we, the Army, because we are the biggest consumer and user by volume, we are trying to shift the thinking in the department to consider what are the parts so that individual units, if they have a drone master trainer or frankly somebody that's just really smart and taught themselves, how do they buy approved parts to put together a, a quadcopter or a, a larger octocopter or something without creating risk for their command from policy. It's not operational risk, it's policy risk. Mm. We want to make sure that they're not getting slaps on the wrist because they tried to do something right for mission. Um, so that that's one, one major area. The use of AI um, for the Ukraine-Russia scenario has also been has also been interesting because what we found and what we saw was the assumptions that AI would replace people are not well-founded today. Um, they are using it very similar to how we are going to have to operationalize it, which is, again, cognitive prosthetic. How do you make people more efficient? How do you make them more effective? But how do you make sure that they aren't having cognitive burnout? And I think um, when I was talking to uh, Lieutenant General Potter, who was the, the former G2 and now the director of the Army staff, how do you make sure that in the, the cognitive domain, we aren't just using technology for technology's sake? We're actually making sure that it's applied to a problem and, and actually with metrics solving that problem or, or alleviating the challenges of that problem. Um, so what we're seeing is really a change in their entire mission command architecture to support AI. And, and I know that's a super overloaded topic, but what it really comes down to is more mobility. Um, it looks more like what we would see every day in our personal lives where they have smaller tablets. They have a mission command architecture that's cloud-based. They use commercial internet and that's both sides. They is both sides. Um, and then they apply commercial technology in the form of, of thing-finding AI, like computer vision or language processing, um, to solve their problems. They aren't trying to build a bespoke military architecture because what we've seen is that it's too slow, it normally doesn't scale very well, and when it breaks, it's very expensive to fix. That's great. And my takeaway is, or how do you breed innovation? Think about that a lot. You know, they are so innovative over there, and we have to create that environment where we can be. And then cognitive prosthetic is my word of the day that I'm taking away from this. I, li I, li I like that. That's great. Okay. So uh, one final question. If you were a rising leader, you know, in the Army, a lieutenant colonel at the Army War College, and you had to put together your personal professional development program, what would you be reading? What would you be listening to? Journal articles are, are, are relevant for this topic. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking out loud in my head, and that's always dangerous. Um, let, me, let me flip it on you. What I would, um, what I would actually challenge battalion, rising battalion commanders, company commanders, and, and this is not limited to the officer corps, this is really leaders of all levels, and that's everything from a team leader up, is write. Write about what you're learning. Make sure that the lessons that you learn do not disappear when you leave the position that you're in. Because one of the challenges, and we saw it time and time again, and it was always frustrating. And I, I remember when General Legere was the G2, and we were going through 
the machinations of of Dsigs and Palantir was a new player on the street, and we were we were trying to figure out, hey, we've spent a lot of money on this big technology ecosystem. It should work. It meets all the requirements. And one uh, AD, I believe it was one AD, it might have been first cab, um, came to the Pentagon and they said, here is our smart book. We have written down every lesson and every configuration and every way to do this. This is our best practices book. And at the time there was like best practices was not a thing that we did for information technology. Um, and that book was gold because what we ended up doing was sharing that with every single brigade combat team that was deploying to make sure that um, if they only took the stuff that the army issued them, they knew how to make it work. So what I would ask is everyone at every leadership level, every rank and every organization, write something about your experience and then read other people's lessons learned. Um, there's plenty of great books that are outside of the government. I, I actually had an opportunity to uh, to meet one of my favorite authors recently, um, uh, Pete Singer and August Cole. Uh, I would recommend, you know, Ghostly's a phenomenal book, Burn In, not because they are prophets, but because they wrap storytelling around things that are potentially true. And it gets sort of the, the mental juices flowing in terms of what could be and how do you innovate to get there. Yeah, that's a terrific recommendation. Well, I'm very excited to hear how the course goes, and hopefully you'll continue to be a part of our, our mission here. I know I'm going to continue to ask you to come speak to my class um, as we try to develop uh, you know, and, and learn to teach data and AI in the classroom uh, and build a better military force. We are out of time for today, uh, but thank you to Dr. Alex Miller for joining us here on A Better Peace, and thanks to all of you for listening. And please send us your comments on the program and suggestions for future programs. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to subscribe to A Better Peace, and please take the time to review and rate this podcast on your podcaster of choice. And have a great day. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.